Ready or not, here Calhoun comes. Let's start with the speech, 1837, uh, by John C. Calhoun. Our topic today, the rights and wrongs of secession. Uh, titled that way uh, to help us think about, uh, again, uh, the strongest arguments that were made on behalf of the movement on the part of some uh, southern slaveholding states to leave the Union. This is in your binder uh, for session 19. should be the first reading there. You can actually just take out that section or turn to that section. Now, the battle cry chapter is more by way of background for us. We're going to look at Calhoun, John C. Calhoun's Slavery as a Positive Good, February 6th, 1837. Uh, do any of you uh, teach this particular segment of American history in the 1830s and 40s at all? Um, what's the context for this speech? What is he responding to? He refers to this thing called, uh, how does he put it, these insulting petitions. What is he referring to there? The abolitionists were petitioning Congress. The abolitionists were petitioning Congress for what? For abolition, yeah. <laughs> These were anti-slavery petitions that were coming in by the droves. Um, why does Calhoun think they're insulting? Okay, questioning his morality because in the South they believe that slavery is not an evil, not a necessary evil, which I think uh, uh, we've established at least during the founding, uh, uh, for most Americans, uh, that was their view of slavery in spite of the fact that they actually possess slaves. Uh, Calhoun now uh, really becomes the chief uh, proponent of the view that slave, not only is slavery not a necessary evil, but actually uh, a positive good. And, and we, I want to explore that phrase even uh, more specifically because he's not just saying, and in fact he doesn't say slavery is a positive good, it's a particular kind of slavery. That is to say, a particular relationship between two distinct race, uh, races or racial groups uh, in the United States. Um, a class that uh, I help teach with another instructor for the uh, Ashland University master's program uh, in the summer uh, class we call Sectionalism in the Causes of the Civil War. In that class, we take a, uh, at least two sessions, uh, three hours worth of time, to look at a number of Calhoun's writings uh, to, to see his understanding of human nature, of civil society, of civilization, and you get kind of a distillation of that in this short uh, excerpt from this speech that he gives. Um, and th those of you who actually study this period of time, what did uh, this conflict over whether Congress should receive these petitions rather than just table them as uh, out of order? Because at, uh, uh, at the time, right, how much authority does Congress have over the question of slavery? Uh, and emancipation in particular. Well, what do you guys think? In 1837, does Congress have any authority over 
The question of emancipation, I'll make it more specific than slavery, because we do know they have some authority over slavery, but what about the question of emancipation? Okay, protecting property, are you anticipating the argument of Dred Scott with that, the, the Fifth Amendment due process argument? Okay, that's, yeah, that's, that's a little early for that. But the question does become, the Southerners certainly think they have that right. Uh, but what about the question of emancipation? Okay, what does the Constitution say about emancipation? They would have control within the District of Columbia. Only the District of Columbia because it is a federal territory. And even that, of course, as you point out, is, is a disputed point in the Dred Scott case. Uh, Federal territory, presumably governed by the federal government, okay? Uh, but outside of the District of Columbia, do they, does Congress have authority about slavery in the states where it already exists? Well, majority of people seem to say no. Lincoln even was still saying no. Okay, well, I mean, I'm asking you, you guys read the Constitution. You, were, you guys looked at the convention. Does Congress have authority over slavery where it already exists? No. They do not. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, they were very specific about this. Okay, and so Calhoun's got at least one leg to stand on here. Um, he, he is he's getting tired of Congress's other more important business being slowed down by anti-slavery congressmen wanting to receive these petitions, send them to committees, and then discuss something he thinks is a waste of their time because they can't act on it anyway, according to him. And I think there's a good reason uh, for this. Go ahead. Would you, would you say that in Calhoun's mind that he was equally as concerned genuinely with the issue of states' rights, states' sovereignty, balance between national and states as he was between the, with the specific issue of slavery? Uh, I, well, let, uh, let me turn that question around to you guys. What does, what does this particular speech say, or how does this particular speech answer that question? In other words, is he just consumed by the question of slavery, or is he making a legitimate argument on behalf, uh, on behalf of the prerogatives of state government in this speech? That's a good question. The question is, is Calhoun just a raving uh, supporter of slave, uh, the right to own slaves, black slaves? Or is he making a principled argument as well on behalf of the authority of state governments over this issue and many other issues, uh, an argument for reserved powers uh, that within which he can say, and slavery is one of those things, one of those domestic institutions. That is to say, one of those institutions that exist within the states. They could have it or not, but if they choose to have it, federal government has to butt out. It's none of their business. Doesn't Calhoun switch in his career? And he starts out as a nationalist. He's one of the war hawks. He supports Clay's so, American plan, and then he switches. This and is so, about 20 years later, but go ahead. Um, That's so good background. To go into causality, does he switch because he's far-sighted enough to Yeah, what has happened since 
his Warhawk days of the 18 teens, as it were, and 1837, of course, is 1828 through 1833, which deals with the nullification crisis, right? In South Carolina, issues that uh, ordinance on uh, uh, proclamation on nullification, ordinance of nullification, is it November of 1828, or, or uh, 28, 32, 32, and then Jackson responds with his proclamation on nullification in December of 32, and then Congress issues the force bill. Those are, uh, those, especially the, the force bill and Jack, Jackson's proclamation are mentioned specifically in this text. Go ahead. says it, doesn't he? He says it. <laughs> right at the and very then, end. Yeah, and he, so I think he believes that, that they have the right to do that if it were to resort to that, but at this point, I don't think that he wants to do that. He is arguing that because of this issue that he's presenting and that it's good for the two to be in this kind of condition, that let's not, let's try to unify, let's not try to. Okay, so he's doing a couple of things here. He's making an argument on the basis of principle, and then he's making an argument on the basis of... Um, he makes the argument on the basis of principle, which we'll explore a little more, so that he can make the argument of a particular course of action to take. And I want us to, to see those two strains. Um, right at the end, just uh, for those who didn't turn there, the, was it page 213? He said, let there be concert of action... In other words, working together, and we shall find ample means of security without resorting to secession or disunion. He says those things out loud yeah. in 1837. Uh, if you look at the nullification, well, uh, let me, I'll, I'll leave that. Go ahead. What I find most intriguing in this is the economic argument he's making. He's saying that it's always in history that one group of people living off the labor of I want us to talk about and that. You hypocrites in the north are living off the Irish Catholics and the German Catholics. We're living off the black men. It just happens the black men aren't the same as us, but they're still people. 
one people over another. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're no different than us. This is the way life is. Well, uh, does he say you're no different than us uh, in this regard? Or does he actually make an argument for a superior system of economic production? I, I think he, t he tilts towards the latter, doesn't he? I think by, in terms of motives, you're right, if that's what you're suggesting, that you're no different in, in that sense. Uh, because surely uh, Calhoun's not one to argue that uh, uh, the Irish should be the wage slaves of other whites. Um, he's making a racial argument here. Okay. Um, uh, what, uh, let me take us off the text for a second here. And what, did, what congressional, uh, not, it wasn't a bill, but what congressional rule of order under parliamentary procedure was adopted as a result of this agitation? Okay, you can't get to a bill. What about petitions themselves? Those of you who guys, what was it called? What was the rule called? The gag rule. Do you remember that? Can anybody give us a, a year? Uh, when did those begin and end? Or can somebody tell us what the gag rule is? Do you, Okay, what happens is they impose, I mean, Congress gets to order their own procedures, right? Uh, you guys probably in your, uh, dare I bring it up, faculty meetings, uh, <laughs> pleasant thought. Um, there are certain orders, right? These are called either Robert's Rules or, you know, parliamentary procedure. One of the procedures that they adopted as a result of this, uh, uh, what, what uh, Calhoun calls agitation over the slavery question was the gag rule that whenever a petition was received it was immediately tabled uh, which under parliamentary procedure means pretty much killed okay? that means it never got, gets discussed okay? and, the, the, and the champion against the gag rule of course, uh, former president now congressman of John Quincy Adams okay? uh, anyway, so the, just for those who are interested in the subject more, you know, find your textbook, go to the index, and look under gag rule, and you will find the, the substrate upon which Calhoun is, is uh, making this argument. Uh, but let's back up. Let's look at the first paragraph. I, I really like this excerpt because this is one you can find on the ashbrook.org website, and they've got a treasure trove of, of documents there. And you can look them up by historical period, Civil War, Progressive Era, uh, founding. You can look them up by individuals. Lincoln, Stephen Douglas, Fred Douglas, Calhoun, etc. And this one is a short enough piece for your, stu your students to work through uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and learn kind of both sides of the issue. Um, he makes a slippery slope argument, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. He's not afraid of what's being done now. He's afraid of if we accept how the issue is being handled now. It will, we will be unable to prevent people to act, uh, from acting on it later. He, notice he doesn't, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time quibbling over con the Constitution. Uh, in a way, he's suggesting, in spite of the Constitution, regardless of what the Constitution says, and in particular, regardless of people who hold constitutional power, regardless of what they even believe to be their own authority, this slippery slope, if we start in, even talking about abolition petitions that will lead to us saying well we've talked about it we might as well do something about it and did you catch that you guys see where he does that 
second paragraph. Yeah. Go ahead and re read that relevant passage there. <laughs> So he says, you and I may know, maybe not all of them, but you and I may know, you know, those of us who are thoughtful, supposed to thoughtless, may, may know that Congress doesn't have authority over this issue, where slavery exists, for example, in South Carolina. He says, that's not, that's not going to mean anything when you get, first, the fanatics. Who are the fanatics? The people who actually believe slavery is a bad thing, calling it a sin, immoral, evil, etc. He says, when that small minority view makes its way into the, what is he, the, the, the weak, the ignorant, the young, and the thoughtless, uh, it will snowball, right? regardless of the fact that they're wrong on the facts, according to him, wrong in history, wrong in principle as well. Uh, he says it will lead to a groundswell of popular sentiment on behalf of the so-called evil of slavery, according to Calhoun, that even those of us who are reluctant but want to hold on to our jobs... Right? Even we will have to bend to their will and do something about the so-called evil of slavery. He doesn't want to wait till that point, because if you wait till that point, it will be too late to prevent Congress from doing something, i.e. even violating the Constitution, according to Calhoun. So he says, we have to nip this in the bud. And that's, that's where uh, the beginning of the paragraph begins, right? The encroachments must be met at the beginning. Those who act on the opposite principle are prepared to become slaves. Okay, that's first, uh, second, third line of the speech. First paragraph. Okay, so he's making the slippery slope argument um, that the prudent thing to do is to head this off at the pass before it becomes impossible for us to resist popular uh, opinion on this subject. The end of the paragraph, right? He says, the most unquestionable right may be rendered doubtful. What is the most unquestionable right that he has in mind? The right to own slaves, right? It'll be rendered doubtful if once admitted to be a subject of controversy, in other words, a subject that Congress has the authority to talk about. And that would be the case in the present instance. The subject is beyond the jurisdiction of Congress. There's his appeal to the Constitution. We don't have authority to talk about this. This is out of order. They have no right to touch it in any shape or form or to make it the subject of deliberation or discussion. Okay? This is what leads to the gag rule. All right, let's turn the page uh, uh, to page 212, or the second page of this speech. Let's look at his, oh, go ahead.
you know, ask you as well as uh, my other participants if they have any comment about this uh, sentence. Never before has the black race of Central Africa from the dawn of history to the present day attained a condition so civilized, so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually. Uh, because the, uh, the, this is the same pattern of, uh, uh, of American policy that's still going on up to today. These, uh, this principle was also used not only during the slavery, but also used during the uh, colonization of Africa, mm -hmm. as well as other countries. And uh, I'd just like us to probably think about it and talk about it and probably put the record straight, you know, because uh, I always have a problem. There's always a problem in the uh, Western society, which is, I think, or I believe is ignorance. People don't have time to, to actually read or learn about other society. Mm -hmm. So they end up, you know, concluding, making some, uh, let me just call it misinformation. I don't want to use any uh, controversial words. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so essentially your argument here is that Calhoun is drawing conclusions based on, at best, misinformation, at worst, flat-out ignorance uh, about the history of the African continent. I hate calling it just Africa because in, I mean, we rarely refer to Europe. We, we usually refer to specific nations. Um, Africa is really a continent, not a country. Go ahead. I think it's pretty common when you look through the course of history that and they, we did the same thing to the Native Americans. Just because their culture was different, just because they were not Christians in the sense that Europeans were Christians, therefore they are barbarians, they do not have a culture, we need to better them and make them more like us. Mm -hmm. They completely ignore the fact that the Native Americans, like the Africans on the continent of Africa, already had a long-standing established religion, culture, system of living, government, the whole nine yards, and just because it's different, we deem it as inferior. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they need to be more like us. Our term is ethnocentrism, which is the basis of all of this. Maybe I misunderstood this, but I, I, I think that the District of Columbia is saying that it's still happening today, that we still use it as a justification. I would agree. I think the way a lot of people look at the continent of Africa, we it's perceived as you know uh, riddled with AIDS, riddled with absolute poverty, and some con and some countries in Africa, many of them do you know deal with a lot of those issues. Um, however, you know along the western coast in South Africa, which is still dealing with you know the end of apartheid and still dealing with a lot of racism and whatnot. There are suburbs. There are folks like you and me and our friends. So there is a lot of misinformation, and I think, you know, I, I think people do think, oh my God, you know, Africa is still in the dark ages, mm -hmm. or China is still in the dark ages. Often, not so. and it's not so. You're absolutely right. But I do agree with what Mashrud has said. 
there is still a lot of misinformation. Well, let's, go ahead, sorry. No, no. I was just saying, let's turn to, to, let's see, and again, you can walk your students through this. Uh, and the very point that you're bringing up, you can raise with your students. Is it true that never before has the black race of Central Africa? And your students, if they're honest, will say, I have no idea. <laughs> That's the safe place to start. Uh, rather than, oh, yeah, we all know that. Really? How do we know that? And I think uh, Mashud is precisely raising the question, how do we know the things that we know? Or th is this received opinion, i.e., I just gave you the definition of prejudice. Received opinion. Could be correct. Could be incorrect. The point is, you haven't reasoned your way to that conclusion. It's just something that you've imbibed somehow, something you've been taught uh, somewhere along the lines. Let's look at how Calhoun makes his argument. And you'll see here, uh, one of the first... Uh, direct critiques of the founding understanding of human nature, civil society, and the purpose of government. Um, it, the, the, I think the seeds are planted here with Calhoun, and we'll see that they take full flowering in guys like George Fitzhugh, uh, in his book Cannibals All, Sociology of the South, uh, where he makes an argument that slavery, especially based on race, uh, is superior to uh, what uh, uh, McPherson referred to yesterday as uh, the wage labor or wage slavery of, of the North. Um, that sentence, too, isn't that kind of what Uncle Tom's cabin trying to address? Is like this the misunderstanding of the time that slaves were like well taken care of, that they're, they lived in, you know, like why would we want it? Why would we treat them bad? They're, they're expensive. We want to take care of them. Mm -hmm. like we're doing all these nice things. And, and so Uncle Tom's cabin really kind of strips that facade away, right? Which yes. Is, like, it still resonates with an audience at that point. Yeah, the novel begins with the most idyllic portrait of slavery, doesn't it? It begins with the family that actually, I mean, they're slaves, they've befriended them, they've promised them freedom at a certain point, etc. And what she does is she, she gilds slavery as best as she can in a, in a fictional way, a literary way, to show you what still at the end of the day could happen in the best of all enslaved situations, what happens? Guy has excessive gambling debts, and he has to go back. He has to violate his own pledge uh, uh, towards his slaves. Um, so the whole Southern honor, Southern culture thing comes. She throws it right in, in the, the reader's face, right from the right, right from the get-go. I mean, this is way before Simon Legree. Uh, she gives you the the best possible portrait you could could have of slavery, and even there. When push comes to shove, you really are just property, uh, even in the best situation. Just a quick statement. It's the same thing you want to there, that benevolence and the paternalism. Just Our Negroes, right? <laughs> we have an understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, look at the, the bottom of, of uh, this paragraph on page two. Um, why does he consider, how does he make the argument that, uh, that slavery uh, is a good what is it based on? What is his understanding of, of human nature, of civil society, of civilization? He says that this is the way any successful nation in the history of the world has made itself successful. Okay, and, and, and some is by what? By using slaves. He said, yeah, he said, and, and uh, be, be a little more specific about that. What, what, what characterizes slavery uh, for Calhoun that, make, that produces the greatest likelihood of success, shall we put it that way? Race-based race slavery. 
Yeah, this is, it's, ra- it's not just slavery. It's not just oh, this majority deciding to take the, away the rights of this majority. Uh, for him, it's when you have these marked differences between human beings, i.e. racial differences. Uh, look, look at right at the beginning of that last paragraph on page 2. He says, uh, or page 212, uh, I take the higher ground. In other words, not agreeing that it's an evil. He says, I hold that in the present state of civilization, and notice what that implies, an evolution or progress, that civilization over time has produced a state that we can reflect on and then determine what is right. For Calhoun, uh, he doesn't talk a lot about human nature as such. Because to talk about human nature as, touch, as such is to take human beings as a fixed entity that doesn't change over time. Uh, and and you know, the language of the founders, remember, was, yeah, that there did exist human nature. That you could tell what people were and discern that they had rights and therefore from that create government to secure those rights. Government, uh, uh, Calhoun doesn't speak that language. His is the language of Darwin, not the language of Aristotle, as it were, or even of the Enlightenment. His is the language of progress and evolution. It's how things develop historically. That's why he refers, mistakenly, but that's why he refers to history. History has shown the following, i.e., history teaches us what is right. Not nature, history. Big difference. Go ahead. No, I mean, it's, I, I'm saying it's, it's an evolution, okay, it, what, I mean, what I mean by that is an evolutionary view of history. Okay. okay I don't want to speak anachronistically. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, ev- I, I, I use Darwin because, I, because I don't want you to think of evolution in a real general sense. He means it very, he really does think that, that the way things are now are, the, uh, are, 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 is the result of an unfolding of history. And this is important when we get to the progressive era, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because they really do take the whole Darwin philosophy and relate it to history. Wilson certainly does. You'll see that in Wilson. He's explicit about it. Uh, have we ever made uh, a research about uh, slave, you know, some slave that worked work as advisors or advise some of these uh, prominent people that was coming about. Has anybody done a history uh, yes, along has, those lines? Has anybody done any research about that? Not, not that I know of. Because uh, I just suspect that uh, some of these slaves also served as, uh, as good as advisors. So if Ganwin uh, is uh, making this statement as a positive <coughs> relationship, there's a likelihood that you know some, you know some. I mean, I in, I watched some movies, uh, some little documentary whereby it was expressed that uh, uh, some slaves uh, had a very um, positive influence with the family that uh, you know they lived with. Okay. So, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not aware of because any it, because here book on the subject. About, uh, you know, I mean, relations that uh, exist between the slave owner and the, and the slaves. So it, it, it may not be all the time. Or the, the outside may look at it as uh, negative, evil. But the slave owner, because of uh, the relationship, the close relationship, you know, considering the slave 
uh, afterwards as a, as a family. Okay, well, let's look at how he characterizes it. Um, what, what does he say here in this, this bottom paragraph? What, what, what does the situation look like? Yeah, there, it's a, it's patriarchal, it's paternal, um, it's it's a sense of noblesse oblige as well, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, the idea here is um, we are not as heartless and callous as you of the north who have adopted uh, this wage labor theory of economic relations. Uh, he says up there, all your employer owes you is cash for services rendered. But when your day is done, whether you have hospital bills or can't pay the rent or break your leg and can't come to work, his connection to you is severed. He, had, he owes you nothing at the end of the workday and prior to the beginning of the workday. How uncivilized, how inhumane, how unchristian, how uncharitable a view of human society, that is. We in the South have discovered that the best way is our patriarchal, yes, paternal, yes. That's precisely the beauty of it, is that when a slave outlives his usefulness or her usefulness, we take care of them. Okay? We are their retirement plan. You don't need a 401k. <laughs> we do, you don't need a 401k. We got you covered. Right? We'll take care of you. Yeah, and as you said, that's the beauty about cannibals all and contrast with Uncle Tom's cabin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder what parents would think, though, if you assigned cannibals all <laughs> to your students. But well, I mean, let's read this. He says, I hold that in the present state of civilization where two races of different origin, distinguished by color, other physical differences, as well as intellectual, are brought together, the relation now existing in the slaveholding states which, of course, is a relationship of white supremacy, right? Between the two is, instead of an evil, a good, a positive good. And then he, he addresses something, or he, he gives a quick explanation of what was referred to at the time as the mud-sill theory, M-U-D-S-I-L-L, the mud-sill theory of labor. What is this? He says, I hold then that there never has yet existed a wealthy and civilized society in which one portion of the community did not, in point of fact, live on the labor of the other. The idea is that in every successful society, in every civilized society, there had to be the bottom rung, the mud sill. There had to be a base that did, literally, the dirty work. But, in exchange, if you will, they were elevated in their sensibilities, in their understanding of the world, etc., by those who weren't doing that nasty type of work. Right? Uh, and so the, the, there was a reciprocal relationship here right, between the workers and the owners, as it were. Uh, that the owners had an obligation to the workers to look out for their interests, 
to protect them. Almost as, it was almost a, a kind of a modern uh, form of serfdom, right, where the lords did have an obligation to protect uh, their serfs. Go ahead. Now, I think what is the most ironic about this whole thing that he talks about here is the last sentence into the first sentence of, you know, the last uh, 2.12 and 2.13. He talks about that, that relationship that exists then is what forms, you know, free and stable yes. institutions. Yes. To me, that's like, that goes against everything that has ever happened <laughs> in history. And it's like, it, he's denying... All of these precedents that have been set, almost, and he's, he's blind and he's not going to see that this is going to cause, or, or at least he's trying to convince people. That His claim is that we have greater peace, less disorder, less conflict, less tension in the South because we have this understanding between these two races. We have these fixed positions uh, that people are in. Uh, and, and yeah, his, his, the great irony, of course, is he says this is where, he says this is the most solid and durable foundation on which to rear free and stable political institutions. Who does it sound like? Alexander Stevens' Cornerstone Address, right? Where there you have the most explicit rejection of the founding. Um, Jefferson is not looked to as the hero. Uh, he's looked to as uh, uh, the, the demon, as it were. Go ahead. It also sounds like the Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's what I meant by definitely facetiously, our Negroes. Uh, we'll get to this when we look at the, the letter uh, that the clergyman sent to King that prompts the letter from a Birmingham jail. This letter that uh, I think there's one rabbi, uh, at least one Catholic, and, and the balance are Protestant ministers. Uh, they say, you know, we, we know the situation. We're working with, uh, with our black people to solve it. We're, we'll get into it in detail there. I think it's a very patronizing uh, view taken uh, that this shouldn't concern King and other so-called outsiders and meddlers. Mm -hmm. I think if you teach an econ class, this might be something interesting to use. Oh, well, yeah. Talk about the advantages and disadvantages of capitalism. Yes. There are econometricians uh, uh, today. That's what they're called, econometrics. Not e economics, but econometrics. They're they guys who, believe it or not, are researching uh, how good or how bad slavery was for people back then compared to wage labor. And I was at one conference where uh, one econometrician was say saying that slaves in the South consumed a higher amount of calories per day than the typical free laborer in Manchester, England. Those sorts of comparisons being made. Uh, and, and, I mean trying to pretend that they're, they're just saying, well, let's look, ignore the moral question of slavery. Let's just look at li livelihood and, and health and well-being, all this sort of stuff. And the, the thing that just keeps coming into my mind is, if slavery was that good in the South, why weren't people running <laughs> down, running south to become slaves rather than running away <laughs> from that situation? But at any rate, I'm, I'm, I think about these things very simplistically. Um. Go. I mean, you would do what you could to 
with the idea. Do you take care of that investment? Take care of that sure, investment. sure. Um, so I mean, there there is some truth to that. Mm -hmm. When we talk about gladiator fighting in Rome, and we talk about the gladiator schools, I can make a comparison of gladiator schools in, in Rome to slaveholders, and the fact that a lot of times when we think of gladiators, we think they're killed right away. <coughs> they weren't the masters had invested a lot of money and time into training these men, and so they weren't, you know. One out of ten was actually killed in a in a fight. It's kind of the same philosophy of you've invested a lot of money into to these black slaves. You want to you don't want to have that profit. And when they're 21 or, or whatever, you want to keep them for mm -hmm. a long amount of time. And so yeah, that's true. And, and the fact of the matter is, um, there were laws. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't kill slaves at will. You couldn't harm them at will. Right. However. Uh, even though those laws are on the books, the fact that you still are treating human beings as chattel, as movable property, uh, meant that you know a lot of times these laws weren't in force. You know, where, where was the proof? No witnesses. Who's going? You know what I mean? So it it, it was fatal, in fact, as it were. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. What you? I was going to say that about no witnesses because obviously <clears throat> slaves could testify in court. That's right, and you wouldn't take the the word of a black man over a white man, etc. By going there. What's there, you know, because we can talk about it to the in the face, but there are some realities in this world that you have to experience, you have to see before you get it. That's know? true, uh, but I would also say there's you could you could also see things through literature, I and mean, this is this was why Uncle Tom's Cabin was so successful. But this soldier had access to Uncle Tom's Cabin. He could obviously read and write, and clearly it's still been Right. Or have them read. Have them read Fred Douglas's narrative. Read a few chapters from Fred Douglas's narrative, where he describes what he saw, what happened to him. Okay, David. Or, go ahead, Tucker. Um, I would also suggest Harry and Jacobs, uh, Life of a Slave, grow great. Uh, kids love that. They pick it up and they can, you know, they fly through that. And, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of reference to her story as well as Frederick Douglass. Good. Uh, one more point I want to make about this speech before we go to Alexander Stevens, because I want you to see the, the bridge here, um, is his comment further up on the page, on page two, um, his thinking down the road. And this is what statesmen do. I'm not saying that Calhoun's a statesman, in my opinion, but I'm saying what statesmen do, uh, part of their greatness is precisely in seeing the danger from afar and, and trying to think, well, if things like this are happening now, what could they lead to? This is what Calhoun is doing. 
Um, he thinks that what he is doing is actually uh, something that will help preserve the Union. He's trying, he loves his country. He doesn't want secession. I mean, he, he's, he, he mentions the word anyway, because that's always that threat, not so silent, uh, that he wants people to know. We've always got, we've got this in the hopper if we need to. Uh, it's kind of playing good cop, bad cop in this speech. Uh, but what does he say in that uh, first full paragraph on page two that points to uh, a future that he already sees in 1837? Uh, this isn't 1850, the, you know, the, 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 the craziness of the Great Compromise. Uh, this isn't uh, you know, the hullabaloo that's raised uh, in 1854 of the Kansas-Nebraska Act or the Dred Scott case of 1857 or John Brown in 1859. This is 1837 where he's already doing this. Go ahead. Notice what isn't being talked about here. The tariff, right? Uh, the, it's our institutions, and fundamental to those institutions, slavery, black slavery. He says abolition and union cannot coexist. What if I substituted the word freedom for abolition? Freedom and union. Would that be fair? Maybe not, but abolition and the union cannot exist, uh, cannot coexist. Right? Then when you say Calvinism believes that what blacks are getting in the South is a, a sense of freedom compared to what they had in Central He says it's in a, in a, yeah, he says it's a relationship where the blacks are improved by their association with whites. Definitely. Uh, it helps that, that black slavery in America is a good for the master and for the slave. Uh, yes, um, this uh, that that, uh, that he's, his reference to two great nations already there. You think, oh my goodness! You know what he is just pointing out here? Yeah, um, or at least in his mind, he ideal ideal in the ideational sense, not in the political physical sense, but in the ideational sense, we have already formed two nations. Yeah, and when you have that. You don't. You have two regimes. See, I mean, in Aristotle, he says this is precisely the seeds of revolution, the cycle of regimes in Aristotle. In other words, in Aristotle, whenever you get two groups with two different conceptions of justice, though that's when you get factional conflict, which means coexistence over the long haul. No, one will wrest control from the other or over the other. That's when you have a, a regime change or a constitution change. Calhoun already sees it here. He says, it's not about this or that issue per, per, per se. It's about two different cultures already coexisting. And in a way, uh, what, what Douglas refers to in the Lincoln-Douglas debate says diversity, what we would refer to more specifically or politically as federalism. Calhoun is saying, strong federalism is what allows us to coexist. 
Douglas, Stephen Douglas says to Lincoln in the, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, you want uniformity, i.e. you want, how do you get uniformity? Despotism, imposition, coercion, compulsion. Douglas says that's not the American way. The American way is popular sovereignty. Let the local settlers decide. Okay, Akin to Calhoun here. When I teach this to my eighth graders, I always go back to the Constitutional Convention and show to the kids that these two separations already existed. The, Even the, as early as that, that you can see those sectional differences and that it just simmers and it boils until, you know, it's like the abolitionist movement is the spark that sets off the powder keg that's been there all along. The one thing I would say that is different that I hope your students get is the, the view of the opinion of slavery. At least I am of the opinion that what Calhoun is saying here out loud, not many people, if any, were saying out loud in the 1770s and 1780s. In a time where slavery was more rampant, was more pervasive, we were still of the opinion that we've got to slough this off at some point. This is the fundamental contradiction of our free society, well, is slavery. Really we can't get, we can't... Well, they really felt that it would die out over time, yeah, they were hoping in a generation or two. Again, this was before the invention of the cotton gin, among other things. The idea cotton was not king, right? People were invested right. in rice, tobacco, uh, and other that's what other products. Oh yes, it made it profitable to have slaves. That's right. So by the time you get to the 1830s, what you have, what you need at that point now is an argument, a defense of holding on to slavery. Whereas before, the impetus was to get rid of it. Now the impulse was. We need a theory so that we can, out loud, with decency, defend our institutions. And so you have this cultural divide created now over the question of, I would argue it's not terrorists, it's over the question of how ought blacks and whites to get along. Um, are all men created equal? Or is there a superior race? and an inferior, and the inferior races, as Stephen Douglas points out over and over again, it's not that they don't have any privileges or immunities, it's that yeah, whites should grant them all the privileges and immunities that are consistent with the safety and welfare of white people. Okay? So, no rights per se, but privileges, grants of immunity by the majority white population. It was used on both sides, but go ahead. Yeah, like kind of the relationship in the Bible of uh, yeah, Old and New Testament. And um, wasn't... Uh, Say that again. What was, what was I'm sorry, I'm interfering with him. Go ahead. Like as part of unintended consequences, when the slaves um, are brought into church, they start identifying more with like Moses and being delivered from bondage. So it kind of backfired. Well, he, what he began with, he says, the argument that when Southern divines started appealing to the Bible as well so to defend slavery. What was the biblical argument? Well, the well, well, go ahead. They argue that the curse on Ham, that from Noah, all of that, um, that they said the curse was, was, was colored with skin. Yeah. yeah. No, Noah had three sons, one Greece, Europe, one African, one Asia, and and the children of Ham are cursed to serve their brethren. 
So that was one argument. There's that, and then of course, just the words of Paul in the New Testament: "Servants obey your masters." And the word in this, the Greek "dalos" is bond servant, slave. And again, one of the things they start with is nowhere is slavery condemned in the Bible. That's the beginning. Murder's condemned, covetousness, adultery. I mean, we've got some explicit condemnations. If slavery was so obviously wrong, evil, a sin in the eyes of the Lord, as Garrison and Douglas and others argued, Frederick Douglass, not Stephen, um, <laughs> if it was so obviously unchristian, where's the condemnation? Where does Jesus condemn slavery? Where does Moses condemn slavery? Where does anybody in the Bible condemn slavery? Now, I'm not asking... I know how I could use the Bible, <laughs> right? But, and Lincoln points this out as well, and you guys have read this, this fragment on, on pro-slavery theology. He says, you know, unfortunately for us, in this, and because this discussion is a political discussion, it's a public discussion, I think Lincoln, Lincoln points out that when we bring the Bible in, guys, unfortunately, as he puts it, there's no audible uh, 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 condemnation here. We're going to have to avail ourselves of some other principles of some other reasons and yet he also suggests you know I also read in the Bible about the golden rule you know, do unto others that, does that should that have anything uh, to say should that weigh in on our discussion of slavery uh, but he does point out that you know because the Bible doesn't make an explicit condemnation one way or the other that really just fuels further agitation between uh, people and again this points to the second inaugural address both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and yet are on radically opposing sides of the issue. Well, this has come up with, I teach in a Lutheran school, we use the Bible in just about everything. And when the kids have brought up that slaves obey your masters, I say, the way I look at it, we were living a lie. Because we had, we were living by the Declaration of Independence, which says that all men are created equal. Inherently, we were living a lie with that. And the, that is one of the commandments. We shall not lie. Bear false witness, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Lincoln also points out, in as much as he's trying to show people that it's tough to use the Bible precisely because it, it can be used for and against, he also points out that the slavery in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, wasn't white on black, folks. <laughs> it was white on white. So in other words, Southerners using that to justify what Calhoun says. We've learned through civilization and the progress of history that whites domineering over blacks is good for both races. Lincoln says, don't cite the Bible to defend that because uh, the only races I know of being enslaved in the New Testament, at least, are whites, enslaving whites. But the year of Jubilee also allowed for the freedom of all That's right, that's so right. And even Paul, you could, I mean, Paul does point out in other places that, you know, if you have a chance for freedom, obviously take it, uh, so. One thing I think is interesting with this, with talking to students, is that you know, this justification issue carries on through so many things as it keeps going on. I mean, it, it's right here, it's this difference. Um, as it goes into the Civil War and the causes of the Civil War, then there's another one, oh, it really wasn't slavery, it was state, state rights. If you go on into the Civil Rights Movement, there's another one, you know, about why they should be allowed to vote and all of these things. And so I think that's just kind of an interesting, like, theme this justifying, this rationalization mm -hmm. that really denies the inherent rights that we have declared for ourselves in this country. Yeah, at minimum for me with my students is 
at the end of the day, it's, it's, it raises the question, what is the basis of your rights? What is the basis of your rights? If it's not human nature as the founders understood it, what are your alternatives? Are you willing to say that your rights really are simply the product of what a majority in power says they are? What are you saying about what you are owed as a human being? Uh, are, you, are you willing to, to make that argument? And that was what Lincoln was, was combating against, at least rhetorically. Um, if you had to assign just one uh, speech, let's turn to the cornerstone speech now, Alexander Stevens, uh, Vice President of the Confederacy. This one is not bad, and the reason for it is it doesn't just talk about slavery, as you know. It does raise the other ones that people like to use instead of slavery. See, it was really about the tariff, or really it was about uh, internal improvements, it really was about the federal government usurping authority over and against the states. This cornerstone speech is a good one because they're all in there, and then the question for your students is, does Stephen seem to weigh one over the other? Or are these just an indiscriminate list of five or six points that he argues for uh, the legitimacy of these separated states, these seceded states, to establish their own nation? Uh, the cornerstone speech is a good one. It's a good set piece for there because you're not... You can, you're, you're not, like with the Calhoun, you could just be accused of, of being selective in your historical documents. You just chose the most rabid guy in favor of slavery. He's not mentioning tariffs here like he did in the olden days, da da da. Uh, well, actually, he was in favor of it, as was pointed out earlier. Um, Cornerstone's one is good because it doesn't lead with the, ta with the talk of slavery, right? What's the first thing Stevens mentions? Yeah, internal improvements. Now, what do we mean by internal improvements? This is a phrase that's come up. Canals, roads, bridges, and what else? Railroads. Lighthouses. Lighthouses. Wow. Okay, very diverse. Highways. Highways. Okay, so um, what are the improvements? And this is, what he, this, is a, this is a speech about improvements. This is a speech justifying what they've done precisely because, not because it's different, but because it's better. We found a better way of governing ourselves. And for him, the improvement on uh, the old way begins with this idea that, uh, as he puts it in the fourth paragraph there, we allow the imposition of no duty, or you could use the word levy there, or tariff, no duty with a view of giving advantage to one class of persons in any trade or business over those of another. This old thorn of the tariff, he says, has been removed. So, is it about tariffs, according to Stevens? Yeah, that's part of it. There's no reason, even for those people who think, no, it was really about slavery, to deny that tariffs were talked about. But let's see how heavy the emphasis is placed on this as opposed to other reasons, and then also couple this with uh, either the article or the book that you read by Charles Dew, Apostles of Disunion, uh, and see what the real issue was. Uh, so, uh, no, no duty that favors one on behalf of the other. Remember, it's supposed to be for the general welfare, and therefore you shouldn't place a tax upon one form of economic uh, livelihood to benefit another form, right? Protecting you know, manufacturers by taxing woolen goods, that sort of thing. What's the second one on that same page? We just mentioned it, actually. Internal improvements, right? Regulation of commerce. They didn't like it because it took on a monopolistic quality, right? Here, if you allow Congress to regulate commerce internally, not across states, but internally, 
uh, which was their argument against uh, uh, protecting domestic manufacturers, what you're, also, what you're actually doing is using government to favor the few at the expense of the many. Okay? So the true principle, he says, at the top of, pa of uh, page 222 is to subject the commerce of every locality to whatever burdens may be necessary to facilitate it. Don't allow government to play favorites. Who made this argument at the time of the founding? The Anti-Federalists. If you remember, uh, in the Essential Anti-Federalists, that argument was made uh, repeatedly, that this federal government will uh, assume power to itself to dictate what form of economic livelihood will be favored over another. That kind of monopolistic power, the Anti-Federalists thought, was inimical uh, or subversive of individual uh, liberty. What's the third point he mentions, the third improvement that's reflected in the new uh, Confederate Constitution? Yeah, now why, did, why uh, is this kind of technical constitutional issue so important? What, what, what uh, benefit do they receive from that? It's sort of like the British model. Yeah. You can debate if, if there's something that affects their department, they can go and speak directly in the debate on the subject. Yeah, and in this sense, uh, you see an argument uh, uh, in some ways against separation of powers. Uh, Stevens doesn't mind that. Uh, he thinks, no, we should, you know, here's a case where we need more blending, more connecting of the departments. Okay? Uh, fourth one, one short paragraph down, down that page. Okay, now, see, he's being very technical in terms of uh, specific changes made to the Constitution here. The tenure of the presidential office is longer. And, and if, if you remember uh, reading essays, uh, uh, what is it, 71 and 72 in The Federalists, which deal with the term of office and indefinite re-eligibility, what benefits accrue by the longer term. Remember at the time, state executives, i.e. governors, typically only served for one year, were not re-eligible, or if they were, they had to stay out of office for se several years before they could uh, be re-elected. Uh, the argument for stability here is there, but, once you serve, you're done, right? Six years instead of four, and president rendered ineligible for a re-election. Okay. Fifth point. Slavery. How long does he spend on, how much time does he spend on slavery? A lot. <laughs> Again, leave it for your students to figure out where, where uh, uh, the real I issue lies. What does he say about slavery under this new constitution? Yes, the cornerstone. That's why it's called the cornerstone speech, right? This is the top of uh, 223. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Now, opposite, opposite what? Let's back up a paragraph. What was he just talking about in the immediately preceding paragraph? What idea? Okay, right? Look at the middle of that paragraph on the bottom of 222, right? He's talking about Jefferson. Right? And then he says, The prevailing ideas entertained by him and most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old Constitution. So, you know, Stevens could be wrong, but this is his reading of the founding. His reading of Jefferson and most of the leading statement was what? The enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature. 
In other words, it was wrong. That it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically, it was an evil they knew not well how to deal with, but the general opinion of that day was that somehow or another, in the order of providence, the institution would be evanescent and pass away. Okay? So he gives you, I think, my opinion, a fairly accurate sense of the founding view of slavery. In spite of the fact that they were slaveholders, they saw it as an evil, a necessary evil, necessary in the sense that they couldn't get rid of it right away. The cure would be worse than the disease, but one that they hoped would go away. What did the Confederates think of the founders' view on this question? Wrong, right? Ours is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. That's its glory. It's precisely the fact that we've learned something from the time of the founding. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro, notice, not slavery per se, but a particular kind of slavery, the enslavement of the Negro, right? The, e the Negro is not equal to the white man. Slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. He goes on later in that paragraph to say that the Creator did not make all men equal. He created some men superior to other men. That's how important to the Constitution? Cornerstone. It is that from which all the rest of the building is made true, right, and stable. Okay? So at least in Stevens' mind, Tariffs there, sure. Internal improvements, sure. Some little, not little, some significant changes in terms of uh, how the, the, the various departments should relate to one another, presidential term. That's all in there. But the real crux, the cornerstone of the Constitution of the Confederate States of America, the improvement uh, that we latched onto was a direct contradiction of the founding principle of human equality. Subordination and served them a certain class of the same race. Such were in violation of the laws of nation. So that was their mistake. There, yes. Between people of the same race, that was the problem. In their society, everyone of the same race will be. Yeah, so there's that Calhounian element again. It's like in the past, it's not that the, 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 the Southern Confederates discovered slavery. No, the world over, universally, historically speaking, everybody knew slavery, everybody practiced it. Right? It was usually the product of what? A successful uh, war. Right? You conquered that people, those you did not kill, you enslaved. That's that. That's that. By the way, if they had won, they would do the same thing to us. Right? This, that was the universal law. Not, not universal in terms of something transcendent, just this what, what was uh, done. Their mistake was they didn't realize that it was a racial premise that should drive slavery, not mere conquest of one city-state or nation-state over another, regardless of race. That's the improvement, right? It's interesting he says this in spite of, or maybe with intention, when there are already, some, in some places, fairly significant numbers of free blacks living in the South, particularly New Orleans. Particularly New Orleans. 
Yeah, in Louisiana. Um, that was one of the most troublesome things for uh, Southerners was the existence of free slaves in the presence of unfree slaves because of the possibility of what they called servile insurrection, slave uprising, uh, which was one of the reasons, by the way, in the founding time, they, didn't, they were not in favor of emancipation where the slaves would be, the freedmen would be allowed to stay in the state. They had to, it was always about what to do with them after and what to do with them was get them out of here because we don't need our slaves to see others that should be slaves walking around doing what they like. That's a problem. If they didn't leave, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, wait, back to Kelly. He would, yeah, he would say that the order of nature is that what's natural, what God intended was for the white race to subordinate the black race. And that, that's the natural order of things, what he calls the, ordinary, the, the normal condition. And, you know, kind of go along that thought, can we say that, you know, justification for uh, Stevens here is uh, that these guys didn't see themselves existing in a state of nature, but they were starting to come to a philosophical point of being able to control different from that more objective nature of the founders? Uh, the reason I hesitate here is because he does seem to want to hold on to the view that it is something you can't change. In other words, that God did intend for whites to rule blacks. So that shouldn't be able to be manipulated. But So in that sense, it's not strictly Calhounian because Calhoun says what's right is what happens. And if it ever came to the point where blacks did rule whites, Calhoun would have to say, well, that's, that's where progress leads us, then that's what makes it right. But at least at this point in time, he says the development is such that just so happens whites are in the majority now. We're ruling blacks. That must be what God intended. That must be what nature intended. So I, I, I'm just careful in, in leaning too, too much towards the view that, that nature can be manipulated. It's certainly being manipulated in the ways that you point out. But human nature, uh, I, I, don't, I don't see that in, in Stevens as much. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. A lot of hands going up. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. He has to make that argument, right? It's a minority. Uh, probably more than one thinks. It's about a third, I think, that have some connection to slavery. Some. It's either a third of families had slaves. In other words, you could be. You may not own slaves yourself, but you could be living in a family where your dad, your parents own slaves. Uh, but it is a minority. Um, you don't have this monolithic, you know, white slave-owning South. Uh, but yeah, the argument has to be, the, the argument uh, on the basis of race helps in that regard because even at least the poorest white, right, this is what helps towards segregation, is even the poorest white at least has one rung. I mean, on the totem pole, at least his face is above ground. You know what I mean? Uh, there's at least somebody, sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> poor white trash, you pretty low. <laughs> Read Flannery O'Connor. Read Flannery O'Connor. Um, at least you're, 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 you've got one strata below you. Uh, 
and, and that's only because it's a racial argument being made, not a class argument. Mm -hmm. Well, I took, on the first, well, I'm paraphrasing and taking chunk out of the um, paragraph, but it just goes along with what you were saying, Tucker, back there, that um, in the big paragraph on page 223, mm -hmm. he talks about um, how they assume the Negro is equal, and hence conclude that he is entitled to equal privileges and rights with the white man. In the very last sentence of that, of that same paragraph, or the last couple, it says, it was impossible to war successfully against a principle in politics as it was in physics and mechanics, but told him that it was he and those acting with him were warring against the principle. They were attempting to make things equal, which the creator had made unequal, which I said is just going on with your point, so it's a little off. Right now. Uh, can you sum up the, the point you're drawing from that? Well, I think with, with what Tucker was saying to you was, uh, not, I'm not saying contradictory, Stated, so I was just going on with that, that it was oh. actually here written. Okay, good. You Did you have your hand up? No? Do you want to have your hand up? <laughs> 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 Go ahead. I don't know enough about of points to make on that, but we'll yeah, have Is that a farm term for, I, I confess this, I said, is that a farm term for their cows or animals? What does he mean by rats? And my wife is a fairly demure, laid back person. She laughed out loud and said, Lucas, rats. They're fighting for their rights. I'm like, oh, right. I could 
I'm, and I was teaching in Arkansas. I mean, there are different accents in the South, believe it or not, as you guys can well attest. But even with those, the Arkansas accent, uh, my wife's slight Texas accent, I didn't pick up that he was saying rats. I said rats. <laughs> how did we get onto rats? You started this. How did, how did we get onto it? Oh, fine for our rats. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I want to make two two points on that, but but hands keep going up, so that's good. Well, sometime um, before the end, uh, it doesn't have to be right now. Well, it's before the end, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, would, it would be helpful for me uh, to get some suggestions for how to teach these issues without coming across as like the biggest racist. Yeah. Um, so like, Number well. No, it's tough. It's tough. I, I, the best way I think is how we're doing it right now is actually have documents. The, the, you want to know what they thought at the time? John Calhoun said this. Alexander Stevens said this. And so it's not about I love this. I hate. This. I mean, I teach Machiavelli. I teach Nietzsche. I teach Marx. Three guys that we can learn some things from and wish people never learned some things from. Um, but I, I tell the students, look, uh, because I'm teaching you these things, this doesn't mean I believe in them, per se, but these are ideas that moved individuals, moved societies, and actually created huge global conflicts in some cases. So uh, they have to learn how to in- understand, especially the arguments they don't like, especially the things they're not sympathetic to. Make that argument first then you're entitled to an opinion about it. How do you teach, though? I mean, we have no African American students in my level, and I can count the adopted Asian children on one hand. My students are exposed to race, they, they don't get it. Well, but would you say that these documents wouldn't help I, them I, see the, the no, controversy? No, it's not something that they're exposed to, they don't, they don't live in that world. Yeah. Well, I think the best way to try to get them to live in this world is by by steeping them in these documents. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. One of the ways that I use, I mean, I'm on a coastal town in Maine, and diversity is, <laughs> diversity is, is next to... Is that even in the dictionary up there? <laughs> go ahead, never mind. Coast, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no diversity what to speak of. But the South, I mean, you see it continually in documents that they're looking upon this as an attack on their way of life. The South is set up at this point Calhoun makes that clear, sure. And American feudalism. Yes. And what I point out to my students so that it brings it home, and, and listening, you know, talking to different people here, you can use the same argument. In Maine, where I live, the big industry is lobstering. Now, I don't care if you're a lobsterman or you're not a lobsterman. If there's going to be legislation that's going to impact the lobster industry, the community as a whole, rallies around it. Why? Because it's an attack on their lifestyle, whether it's the number of traps, the size of the traps, the size of the mesh. The South is looking at it the same way. I mean, if you're a rancher or you're in a mining country or Mm -hmm. wherever you are, it's an attack on their life. They're going to protect it. The, The poor whites of the South, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness for them to achieve well, was to achieve a plantation and have 50 or 30 slaves. That's their American dream. In Booth Bay, Maine, the dream of most of those kids is, well, I'm going to have a little skift, and I'm going to have 14 lobster traps, and then when I graduate from high school, I'm going to have a, you know, a 48-foot boat and have all 800 traps. And if somebody's going to take that away from me, I'm getting pretty pissed. Okay, good. I think 
Um, yeah, I think that's correct. I want to link it to one of our readings for today, what time we have left. Go ahead. Um, Ancestors who fought in the Civil War, they were sharecroppers, they never owned slaves, and their idea of the American dream was not to own slaves and have a plantation, but to simply have a farm of their own where they could provide for their family without having to give a portion of it to someone else. Sure. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what is our way of life? Um, what did you learn from this book? Okay, quick, quick question before we jump to this. We've got 10 minutes left. Go ahead. I'm not sure what section we deal with this, but it's the whole question of did Lincoln bait the South into Sumter? Yeah, that was the ostensibly our topic okay. yesterday, but if go you ahead. Look at page 226, I, and I use this. 226. Oh, go ahead. Okay. The cornerstone speech, in the first full paragraph, uh, one, two, three lines down. He says it, the idea of coercion shadowed forth in President Lincoln's inaugural seems not to be followed up thus far so vigorously. As we expected, yeah. And I use that all the time in saying how we view Lincoln's first inaugural as the open invitation, you must be the aggressor. And here's Alexander saying, bam. We're viewing it precisely in the opposite direction. And yet he moderates it by saying he hasn't, uh, so you know what I'm fall. saying? Yeah, and, and one of the reasons for that, of course, is he's only been in office for, for how long? And this is March 21, Yeah, he's Lincoln was inaugurated March 4th. Right. And that's what people, look, has Virginia seceded? No. no. They, in fact, have voted against secession at this point, but they're still hanging around. They're watching and waiting. Stephen Douglas is writing letters. He, as soon as he finds out Lincoln is elected, what does he do? He turns to the South. Stephen Douglas did, he did something that no one, as far, as far as I know, did prior to 1860. He campaigned for the presidency. In other words, once he was nominated by the Northern Democrats at that point, after the Democratic Party split, essentially guaranteeing the Republican uh, the presidency, um, Lincoln did not travel the country making speeches. Breckinridge didn't. Uh, you just didn't do that. Anybody who campaigns for office is the last person you want to elect for office. Think about it. <laughs> you didn't run. You stood. Think about the difference. You stood for office. You allowed your name to go forth as if it was you know, the call of the people. You didn't say, oh, yeah, I really want to be such a... You didn't do that out loud. You did it you know, in private letters and stuff. You didn't do it publicly. In 1860, who wanted to be president? Stephen Douglas. And he campaigned. But as soon as he found out that Lincoln won, he went south. And he, tr he did everything he could for union. Who held Lincoln's hat at the first inaugural? Douglas did. Literally held Lincoln's hat while he gave his inauguration address. Um, he died fairly soon thereafter. Some people argued that the tireless efforts that he made on behalf of, the, of Lincoln is what ultimately led to his demise. Good. Yeah, I was going to make two points. One, for starters, we have to remember uh, a part of the not monolithic South is every state of the Union except for South Carolina sent at least one regiment to the Union Army. That is to say, there was some. How significant? Clearly Lincoln thought it was more significant than it was there. But there was some Unionist citizens in every state of the Union. Did they deserve constitutional protection? Lincoln thought they did. 
right? And so, except for South Carolina, every state of the Union, in the South as well as the North and the West, sent at least a, a regiment to fight in the Union Army. Okay? So there is Union sentiment, and, and the best book on how Lincoln was trying to cultivate Union sentiment to restore Union, that was his favorite term, not reconstruct, because that presumes it destructed. Yeah. It was destroyed. His preferred term was restoration. The best book on this is With Charity for All uh, by William C. Harris, won the Lincoln Prize. Uh, and what it does is it takes kind of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern view of the Civil War. Lincoln is kind of the outside guy in it. And the focus is on the military governors, sympathetic senator like Andrew Johnson in Tennessee, the only one, I think. Um, it looks at North Carolina, South Carolina. It looks at various states where union sentiment was significant. Uh, and how Lincoln tried to work with them to try to restore local power in the hands of uh, sympathetic uh, American citizens in the South. That's one point. The second point is the point from Dew. When you talk about, quote, our way of life, what do we learn from either the article we gave you, the short synopsis of this book, or this book? I love this book because it is so tidy. Um, it's got a couple of excerpts. I wish he had more speeches and letters in the back, but he quotes from a, no a number of them and, and uh, enough of them to give you a flavor. What, in short, were secession commissioners from the early seceding states being sent out to the other states, like Virginia, to persuade them to join their cause, the cause of the Deep South? Um, what were they saying to each other <laughs> what, that was the reason, or the reasons, plural, for seceding? Mm -hmm. from Georgia, but he had basically was telling everyone how because Lincoln was elected, it was going to be the death sentence for slavery, and he was laying out these points. And anyway, at the end, his passionate and emotionally charged appeal is what he ends with, and he talks about, it says, by the time the North shall have attained the power, the black race will be in large majority, then we will have black governors, black legislatures, black juries, black everything. Gee, what word is being repeated? Thank you. Just in case somebody missed that. We suppose that the white race will stand that. To me, that somebody says it's not about slavery. You go, oh, you're right. Actually, it's about something even more specific than slavery. It's about white supremacy. This, I think he's being polite. I mean, it is true that this is technically a book about apostles of disunion. What is the word apostle? It's a transliteration from the Greek apostolos, meaning just to be sent out. They were sent out to promote. Disunion. So this title could have been Apostles of Secession, Apostles of Disunion. But the, the, the crux of their argument was, really, white supremacy. This book could have been also been titled Apostles of White Supremacy. Seems like, I mean, before I read this book, and by the way, this book was written by a guy who grew up an unreconstructed Southerner. If you read his intro, it's very, the autobiography is very helpful. So your students don't think, oh, yeah, so what, at University of Virginia Press, they're all liberals anyway. No, we know. Let's no, this guy's from the South, right? Uh, before I read this book, I thought, you know, it's going to be some of the terrorists, slavery, white supremacy. It's going to be an amalgam, but it's really going to be about slavery. I thought it would just kind of be mixed in, kind of like throwaway lines at the end just to rally the troops. I was, I was shocked, not in the, the Casablanca shocked form, <laughs> but I was truly, there's gambling, yeah. Shocked. Uh, I was really shocked to see how pervasive the arguments on behalf, behalf of white supremacy were. 
Like these guys couldn't. It's like they were trying to outdo one another. You know, what's going to happen? You know, bottom rung on top. That was the argument. It was all about white subordination of blacks. At least in that sense, non-slave owners could say, yes, our way of life means I'm at least up on this pecking order. Maybe at the top. Maybe I'll get there. But at least I'm above this lower rung of blacks. And I don't need to own slaves. My race at least makes me better than those folk. Which were, which were minority, admittedly. Okay. Or B, fought to protect white supremacy. But that still doesn't, I guess I'm looking for an understanding of this opposite point of view that there was a third option. That they were fighting in some way to protect the family home. Yeah, no, I think that's right. part of it there. I Maybe think that's clearly part of it. Else to, is there a, are there those who see it in a third light that, that Am I not phrasing my question well? No, I, I'm agreeing with you. I think that, uh, and again, we, there's, there's no, you don't have to put people in real, I'm only farting to protect slaves. No, part of fighting to protect slaves is also fighting to protect the racial caste system. Well, what was going on that would, that would make people, I, I mean, I don't understand what was actually happening that would make a poor white farmer feel that his rights were being invaded. I think, again, uh, I mean, maybe I'm just repeating myself. The other thing is, look, when you're, it, when you're attacked, it's almost, it doesn't matter. You're fighting to defend yourself. The, the issue had been phrased as one of aggression, right? And so, yeah, invasion. So if you're being attacked, I mean, what's the, what, are the, what do all despots do? When, when things are going bad for their own people, because they're despots, by definition, they're going bad for their own people, what's one way to unite your people? Find some outside enemy. The outside enemy in this case was federal government. So they were manipulated by their leaders into believing in I think that was... I wouldn't use the word manipulation because that loads it for your students. I wouldn't use the word manipulation. I would say that the, the issue was phrased as nationalism versus states' rights in that sense. But states' rights encompasses slavery, white supremacy... Sure. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Go ahead. She's using the word brotherhood, which I think is important here because, you know, my husband's family is from the South, and even today, you know, you, who's your kin? There was this idea yeah, very of important. kinship, and they traced genealogy. And there wasn't as much, uh, society in the North was much more mobile. My people always lived on this. this yeah, plot of, yeah, that's your true. People didn't own slaves. This was still your people, your kin were here. No, very fiercely independent-minded. Yes, that was when you, you were fighting with your kin. It was a sense almost that if you didn't fight with them, you know, you were disloyal to your family. Sure. Your family. Sure. Closing comments, real quick, because yeah. we're out of time. Yeah. South lost blacks came into into freedom. You're on the last rung of the white race. You now have competition. Yeah. Well, and I understand the word manipulation because, in some in some sense, it is because, of course, if you if your dream really was just to own your own plot of earth until it, etc., to have to compete against slave labor. I guess I, 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 I,
They didn't. They never really right. squared that. So something had to trump that, and in my mind, it was white supremacy. I feel like that word Right. In the Well, you make we, you have to make a distinction here between what they perceive to be the threat and what was the actual threat. But that's a longer discussion. We're out of time. I see four hands, but we're we're out of time. Unless you can say these things in fifteen words or less. Very short. Go ahead. Not right at the outset. Not not in, not right at the outset. If enough people are rushing to the cause, then they probably wouldn't have needed to resort to that. Oh, that, that eventually had to had to happen. 